The sun is setting on a hot summer's day in Mount Druitt, the western suburbs of Sydney. It's the 1980s, and while most kids are finishing school and heading home to do sports, homework, or spend time with their friends, a young teenage girl is standing outside her weatherboard home. Arms folded, she cranes her head around as she hears the thunderous roar of a car engine revving around the corner. As the car skids to a halt in her driveway, she realises the person behind the wheel is her friend Russell. It's a shiny RX-7 sports car he's driving. But Russell isn't from a rich family. His parents were factory workers. Surely they couldn't afford such a car. But what's more troubling about the situation is that Russell is only in high school, barely old enough for his learners, let alone driving alone. And the car was stolen. But Russell's fun would not end there. At the age of 15, having stolen another car, he was involved in a police chase and thrown in a place called Derek Boy's home. His experience there would haunt him for years. This is the story of Russell Manser, a man who went from stealing cars and robbing banks and spending the better part of his life behind bars in a number of maximum security prisons and boys' homes. Today, in his 50s, he's an advocate who helps other prisoners. But what really happened behind closed doors at Derek Boy's home? And what are the consequences for returning offenders who feel trapped in the cycle of going back to Dale but want to stay out? That's on today's episode of Motive and Method. Welcome to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro, criminal psychologist. And I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet, criminologist and forensic scientist. And today we're speaking to Russell Manser, a fascinating bloke with an intriguing history involving boys' homes, prisons, drugs and redemption. And we're very, very happy and privileged to, uh, to be able to be speaking to Russell today. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I guess starting off, um, can you tell us about the men you had as role models when you were growing up? father figures, brothers, if they existed, and so on. Yeah, I was, an, I was the youngest of six kids, five boys and one girl, and um, 17 years difference between me and my eldest brother. And um, he was sort of my original, like, sort of role model. And my second oldest brother joined the army, and he was sort of a big physical sort of a, a character, you know, well-built and that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I guess my second oldest brother, Stephen, who, who, who you know, was a guy who was a bit of a tough guy in the area, uh, had a pretty good reputation. He would have been my sort of first role model. I wanted, I wanted to join the army because he was in the army. And then, but then what happened was, you know, I started to get to an age where I could see, you know, there was other people in the area like the bank robbers and the criminals and that sort of stuff that seemed to have the nice cars and the um, sort of exciting, the excitement in their life that I, I guess I yearned to have from a young age. And, um, I guess, you know, that sort of stuff appealed to me because, you know, I also noticed the working man, the battler, up at the bus stop in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, looking miserable, coming home, never smiling. <laughs> just, they just didn't look alive. But yet these criminals were charismatic and they had, you know, this lifestyle, the nice clothes and looked like life was just one big good time. 
And I guess, you know, that appealed to me from, I, I can remember from around about the age of 10, thinking, yeah, that's, I can even remember a time when a bloke drove past in a Jag and, and I said, that's what I want to be in my life. And my dad said, they're drug dealers. I said, well, that's what I want to be, a drug dealer. I always wanted a Jag as a kid. I think it was every boy's kind of ambition, wasn't and it? And girls. <laughs> I like Jags too, yeah. And at one point in my younger life, I bought one and like with every Jag owner, a month later, I deeply regretted it because it never started. It was unreliable and I ditched it. But those sort of role models were important to you and I guess at some level you thought it was a way out of the drudgery of what you perceived as a, a normal life working and uh, working in the in the factories and so on, yeah? Yeah, for sure. Sorry, I was just going to ask you, how were they generally viewed in, in the community? I mean, you obviously kind of looked up to them. Were they kind of outed by the community or were they kind of seen as Robin Hood figures kind of, you know, because I'm wondering what impact they had more more generally, like on you and your family and your friends that might have kind of incentivised you to follow that path? Yeah, they were treated like return war heroes. They really were. I think the community I grew up really embraced the criminals. They really embraced them, in, you know, to the point of harbouring them if they got in trouble. It was like the authorities were the enemy and, and they were harboured and they were looked after and people did look up. No, it, just, it wasn't just the common... There was a pretty common theme to it that a lot of the young kids did look up to them. Well, there was a lot of glamour and I guess attendant to that, a sense of security and being protected if you're part of that group, yeah? And no disincentivization to step away from that because there was the money, there was the other, you know, trappings that come with it, plus the community would actually embrace you. The disincentive was you're seeing the girlfriends or the family members at the same bus stop that the factory workers were on going down to the jails to visit them on a regular basis. Mm. You know what I mean? I thought that was the other part that sort of said to me, oh, just that don't, that don't look fun, dragging the kids along. And it was sort of itinerant in a lot of ways you know they would be home for a, a small period of time and then be gone again for years and you know I, I noticed that it was all part of the career path I mean I I started my career working at Parramatta Jail a long time ago now and you know I came to know the fellas there pretty well during the time that I worked there they just saw jail as part of the job you know you, you're out mm. in the community for a while you did well you had all the things that you've described and then if you got pinched, you'd go to jail and you did the time and you copped it sweet. I mean, what was the old saying? If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. And so how did you get involved in crime? You, you obviously made that choice at some point. What was it that, that actually was that, that moment for you? I can remember going to the bus stop at school and kids pulling up in like SLR 5000s, the type of car, and, and Tirana's hotted up cars and picking up their girlfriends, a stolen one, I might add and picking them up and they, could, they weren't even tall enough to touch the, a lot of them have to sit on phone books and that sort of thing to drive to see out of the steering wheel. They were that young. Yeah, that was, that one looked exciting, 13 or 14 year old kids driving these high powered performance cars. So, and that looked fun. And I, I mean, and, and, and they too were, were kids from a lot of dysfunctionality. You know, the home life wasn't too good. And I, and I just remember that looked like fun. And one day I just jumped in. One of the boys pulled up in a stolen car and I said, come in and give us a, come for a ride. And I went in and the next minute I, you know, I was driving it and I was learning from the boys coming home from the boys' homes how to steal cars. And that's who I learned from. You know, the other thing I learned when I worked as a shrink in the clink was old style blokes said, well, boys' homes were the high schools of crime mm -hmm. and jails were the university of higher crime. In other words, you learned all the stuff you're almost peer group mentored into it in a way, weren't you? 
learnt the skills and it went from there. It was like um, a college of knowledge. Back in the days, they weren't the diversion programs that are sort of available today in the in the children's courts. So back in them days, it was like you never got a chance. It's like you know we're gonna we're gonna you get pinched. We're gonna lock you up as a deterrent for future reoffending. And um, unfortunately, a lot of in place, places, in particular, the first home I went to was Derek, which is the subject of a 60-minute story because of the prolific mm. sexual and physical abuse that took place there. And unfortunately for me, I didn't escape that. And um, But that was twofold, you know, because I learnt so much about different crimes because the inner city kids, in particular where we're filming from now, right now, Erskineville, were really advanced compared to me growing up in the western suburb of Mount Druitt were really advanced. They were a next level. They were stealing Porsches and breaking into sports shops and even doing armed robberies. They were young bank robbers back then. And how? what was the first crime that you actually got arrested for and what, what kind of took you to Derek? I drove a stolen car in Parramatta, an old, an old bomb, got in a police chase, smashed the car, ran away, and I got away, but the co-accused got caught and told on me. So the police had been to my house and my mum and dad were really law-abiding citizens that believed in protecting the good family name. And my mum and dad said, we've got to go down to the police station, hand yourself in. And uh, they took me down there. And How old were you then? 15 I was. I was 15. And you sort uh, of preempted my next question away. I was wondering how your family reacted to all of this. I mean, you're, you're drawn to the glamour. You're hanging out with guys that are stealing cars. Uh, you've just described your family as being law-abiding, pretty straight people. How did they react to what was going on with you? Oh, that, that was like a big... It was really embarrassing for them and, you know, because and my brothers give it to me. They said, mate, you're destroying our good family name. They were really big on the good family name, you know, and, and it was like, I don't know, it was a source of embarrassment from them. They'd say, oh, you know... My, you know, one of my brothers would say, oh, my mate's telling me about your, you're stealing this or you're stealing that, mate. You've got to stop, you know. It's, and, you know, because I don't come from that dysfunction. Don't get me wrong. My family, my, my, both my parents were workers, right? My dad worked in a factory. My mum worked in a factory. And I hardly see them. So I become really self-sufficient from a young age. I was cooking for myself at five years old. I can remember, five. like, yeah, cooking eggs and making toast and that sort of stuff, you know, because... I love my parents and they'd done their best for me, but they were, my dad was really absent. He was a, His background from Liverpool was a merchant seaman, so he wasn't a big communicator. He'd just get home from work. He'd just grab a book and read his book and smoke his Peter Stuyvesant cigarettes and he wasn't really engaging. And he also, from a young age, he was riddled with emphysema from smoking cigarettes. So, you know, my interaction with him or communication with him wasn't that great. And my mum, I loved her to death. She was the salt of the earth, but I... Man, I used to yearn about it for weekends so I could spend some time with my mum because, you know, she worked night shift in, in a factory. So she'd start do the 11, uh, 11 till 7, 11 at night till 7 in the morning and sleep through to the day. So, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't too much parental engagement from a young age I can remember. So not a lot of supervision left you vulnerable to peer group dynamics as I describe them and... Unfortunately, I guess in, in many ways it, it led you down that path and ultimately you surrender yourself to the police. I assume mm. you go to children's court at that age and they yeah. sent you to Derek, is that right, on the first Yeah, occasion? I went to Minda Children's Court in front of Barbara Holbrook and it used to upset me seeing her jump on TV and talk about what a compassionate woman and everything. She wasn't too compassionate to me that day. But, you know, she was just doing a job, I guess, and, um, and, and she was directed by, the par you know, by Parliament what she had to do. 
but they sent me out to Darwick and unfortunately... As a first offence? Yeah, basically a first offence, yeah, first offence. I think I had one bond for something else, but it wasn't much. It was basically really a first offence. And then went to Darwick and the sexual abuse, I think it was um, there was a pedophile ring running out of Darwick Boys Home because the people doing a lot of the abusing, you'd never seen them there before. So what was happening was over night time we would lay in these dormitories and you could see everyone through the dormitories because they had like a like maybe a metre high separation thing of walls but there was no full walls then. So you could see kids getting dragged out of their beds over night time and marched into the abusion, ablutions blocks and some by kids were... By older boys or by custodial officers or by... By, by, custodial, by, by custodial officers and other adults who... We'd never seen there before. So, so people were coming into the boys' home at night to access the children and this was an organised activity? Yeah, it was. That's right. And I think um, I think Webster, he's one of the superintendents, ended up getting charged with it. There's been uh, there's been a few charged with Derek from the abuse that took place. And it wasn't only Derek. I mean, I, I've known blokes who went through Derek, but it was also places like Tamworth, Mount Penang. Yeah. It seemed to occur wherever there were young, vulnerable kids mm. um, in custody. Systemic. Tamworth was the worst. I don't know if you've ever seen that uh, documentary, ABC's a documentary, Home for Killers or House for Killers. And there no, was a no. correlation drawn between some of the worst murders in Australia, like Nettie Smith, the Baker Crump, Archie McCavity, all these kids, all these, they went to Tamworth for misdemeanor offences, went on to perpetrate some of the most heinous crimes. Yeah, I'm aware of it and I knew some of those guys because, you know, I worked as a psychologist in Parramatta in the late 70s. Mm. So guys like Jimmy Murray. I knew Jimmy, yeah. Yeah, a good bloke. And they told me all these stories about what went on with Tamworth mm. and as you'd be better aware than me, a lot of those guys then ended up in Katingle for mm. very serious crimes. Katingle was a supermax jail within the Long Bay complex guys like Bernie Matthews and so on, and they all said, consistent with what you're saying, that it all started at Tamworth. It was a shocking place. I think you'd be desensitised, those kids, because that's what happened. From the abuse itself, you'd become high, like I know from my own abuse, what that abuse done to me. Like I was, a, I dare say I was a bit of a sensitive kid when I went to Derrick, but I soon, when I came out of there, I was highly desensitised. No How doubt long about. were you there? I was only there for six months. Long enough, though, but that, that felt like a lifetime. Yeah, every day felt like a year at uh, Derek. It was just one of those things. That I definitely come out a different kid. I, I definitely had, from the abuse itself, you know, I had a void in me, like this hole in me that was like no other, and I couldn't explain it at the time. I didn't know what it was at the time, and it took me a long time to realise what it was, and it was trauma. Did you talk about it? Did you, like, did the, did the boys talk about what was going on? I mean, did you share it with anybody? Look, they, the kids, when you get there, they, like, it was just something that didn't get spoken about because everyone was so ashamed and so, so embarrassed about what was happening to them. I guess your refuge was when you didn't talk about it and you didn't acknowledge it. It was sort of like we'd sit there. We all know these bad things were happening to us. It was just so surreal because, and then no one would talk about it, nor even go close or even talk about back in them days, you know, you'd uh, insult someone by calling them gay or a poof or whatever. You couldn't do And if someone called someone like that, they'd be attacked really bad. It'd be the worst thing. How long before it started with you? Was it like the first night or did they second wait? Second night, I think it was. Around about the second night since I got to Derrick and night, you know. Unfortunately, you know, because that first night I didn't sleep at all. I was sort of basically sleeping with one eye open. 
And then the second night, I, you know, I was laying in bed and I sort of dozed off. And next minute, I could feel something touching my groin area underneath my, underneath my, uh, you know, blankets and sheets. And then, um, and then this bloke with the worst breath, you know, this I can smell a sewer sometimes, and it reminds me of it. And um, he was breathing on me. He told me to get out of bed. Took me to the ablutions block, which is the shower block and toilet block, and then sexually abused me. Uh, and then another officer joined in, so both of them sexually abused me at the same time. It, it's just quite perverted and sick, isn't it? Did this happen every night? Not every night, you know, sometimes. And then once again, you know, I get sexually abused by a man that I didn't even know. I've never ever seen as an officer there that happened there. So they're bringing um, their mates in? Yeah, they're bringing their something was going on there. And I don't even think the Royal Commission even crossed that. But anyway. So you're probably just in survival mode at this point, aren't you? People who I've spoken to about domestic and family violence, they don't even necessarily, when they're living through it, they don't even necessarily acknowledge themselves consciously what's happening because they can't. So it's almost like a, a denial as to how bad things are because they're just trying to get through. That makes sense, you know, definitely. I, you know, we were, like I'd sat, sat down and, and the next day and pretend, think it was a dream, it was a bad dream that happened to me. You know, I pretended it wasn't happening. But it kind of set you up with, I would imagine, without getting into your head too much, but a lot of anger, resentment, not trusting society. Not trusting men, not trusting men. Like older men, I created a real resentment. I looked at older men, I generalised every older man as being, a, a, you know, a pedophile. You know, and so was it following that that the drug use started, or was it yeah. you know a bit later when you went to prison? Look, I, I got out of jail. I, I was never someone. I never smoked. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. The smoking of pot, which a lot of my friends were engaging in, didn't appeal to me because of that factor. You know, I just didn't like the idea of putting smoke in my lungs because my dad was very emphysema, you know. And, um, you know, not long after I got out of Derek Boy's home, I was going through an underpass and there was some some blokes there having a bong, older blokes, and they loved me because, you know, here I was, this young kid who'd just been a Derek, you know, and I was rock solid, no one got told on or anything like that, and I came out with a group. And, and, no, and I, I was that person they started to celebrate, you know, and I, and I was someone that, you know, they recognised I, uh, I had an identity now because I was this person who went to Derek Boy's home, rock solid, and I've come home and um, so anyway, this bloke said to me, do you want a bong? And I, and I thought, oh, I just said, you know, my auto cue would have been like, no, but he said one thing, he said, I'll make you feel good. And that's all I needed to hear. When you felt so bad. Because I felt so shit. And I had one cone and then, like, it just sort of numbed me and it was like that, I don't know, the shame and, and um, it's like it wrapped up the shame, the guilt and the anger and all those sort of things so I couldn't hear it, so I couldn't see it. It was like this visual taping it up of it all so I couldn't see it and I was happy and I had, and I had more, one more, one more, one more and then every day I started backing up and taking that, you know. But whilst I was at Derrick, I'd done an apprenticeship on how to steal Porsches, you know, just for visuals. People could tell me how to steal a Porsche visually and so on off I went. And I, it was like... And there's a Steve Earle song, um, Copperhead Road, and he come home with a brand new plan. You know, he took seeds from Botana and Mexico, you know. And it's talking about this, you come home from this trip away with new knowledge of crime, you know, and that's what I did. And um, so I come home from Derek with new knowledge, and I was only willing to tell everyone about it, what I'd learned. What did you learn at Derek? I learned how to steal Porsches. Watch me. So you were still very young then. 
Yeah, I was 16. And I'd go over to the, like, I'd grow up in Mount Druitt, so I'd go to Chatswood and steal a Porsche from Chatswood Chase Car Park because, you know, that's, that was an that's an affluent area or Whale Beach or Double Bay or whatever and go to Mount Druitt and I'd turn up and I was like, you know, and I started to get this hero-type Robin Hood-type status. Here's this young fellow and, and you know, I, I dressed differently. I dressed like the kids from the city, you know, in the sports gear and, and stuff like that. And um, Where did you stash the Porsche? Presumably not at home. No, no, what I'd do, there'd be, there used to be a block of flats across the road from Mount Druitt Police Station right in front of them. <laughs> and and um, you could go out and have roller doors and that. No one ever used, because in Mount Druitt, not many people own cars, you know, so there was plenty of car parking spots. We'd go and park the Porsche in the garage there and over night time bring it out and turn it on again, you know. Turn right on. next to the police station. Yeah, right under their noses. So were you, was that, do you think, kind of challenging them? Were you kind of, you know, was that your way of, I don't know, like oh, just for saying, sure. Am I sticking our finger up in yeah, it? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, is that yeah. what you were doing? But yeah. surely by doing that, you risk then obviously being caught again because Porsches are going to be unusual in Mount Druitt. Mm. And then you're back to point A, aren't you? You're back mm. in Derrick or, or whatever. Sure. Did you? Were you thinking about things like that or were you so angry? My consequential thinking didn't come until later in life, I don't think. And um, You live in the moment, so, right? Yeah, and, it was so. It was so. I didn't have no. Um, you know, there was no risk analysis. There was no nothing like all these things I learned later on. My, yeah, I was just. I didn't care. You know what I mean? Because what they'd thrown at me by that stage, I was that highly desensitized. It wouldn't matter what they'd done from there on in. And you still weren't talking about obviously the abuse that you'd suffered. So obviously mm. you didn't get any treatment. And was no. was any treatment even available then? No, nothing. Look. My whole thing was after the abuse took place, there used to be these women that worked in there. They were like older women, say, of the grandma age, vintage. And um, and I did say something to one of them women. She went to belt me, went to slap me. And I said, listen, there's, you know, something bad's happening. And she goes, if I had a dollar for every one of them, oh, 10 cents or something like, for every time I'd been told this same thing, you little lying bastard, and she chased me out of this. You completely invalidated the worst possible mm. thing that could have happened to you. But that's that whole thing. So that that turns you off saying anything. That that one experience turns you off from saying anything because you're not going to be believed. And possibly even punished further. Mm. So when you're out and about and stealing Porsches, were you also smoking a bit of dope? I was smoking heaps of it. I become the, it used yeah. to be one of those things like I'd wake up and I'd have, you know, a couple of bongs as soon as I got out of bed. I, I couldn't imagine even doing that these days. But get a couple of bongs thrown out of bed, that numbness, because, you know, you're waking up, you wake up and that madness is there. It's at the end of the bed, the monkey in the back or whatever is at the end of the bed talking to you and it's giving it to you about the shame, all them horrible things. So you want to get up and numb that as quick as you can. And that's what it becomes in the drug dealing and not drug dealing, but um, drug ingesting, you know, took, that was just all day, every day. And that was what my motivation was. And then did you progress to other drugs? Look, I um, at the age of 16, going on, I think I was about 16, going on 17, I stole a Porsche from my old beach, had a big chase in Sydney. It was the first time the police ever used a police helicopter and um, to chase someone and um, I had, unfortunately it was on me. And um, anyway, so I got in this chase, got pinched over at Cremorne, jumping into Sydney Harbour by the water police and went before Judge. Pretty dramatic. Yeah, it was crazy. It was, it was like a scene out the Blues Brothers. We are going across French Forest Road and it was really dark and I look around the mountain there and there was all these like 30 or 40 police cars chasing us. But um, 
Anyway, so I, I got pinched for that. I went before Judge Blackmore, who's been accused of all sorts of stuff himself in regard to children, magistrate child, magistrate judge Blackmore, who set up a, um, who, who himself set up a um, child refuge that ended up being the subject of a pedophile ring itself. So I went before Judge uh, Blackmore, and, and this is another thing that come to me. I never, my distrust for lawyers, because I had a legal aid lawyer, he, he never mentioned anything. He said, oh, you know, you'll plead guilty, you'll get six months, you'll be off to Mount Penang. And um, he never mentioned anything, but he, and the judge sentenced this and stipulated at 16 years old that be, he was going to give us 12 months and it was to be sent, uh, served in an adult prison to deter us from future reoffending. And um, did that? cause you more fear? I mean, did you, would, no. which would you have preferred? Would you have rather gone to Mount Penang or would you rather have gone to an adult prison? Knowing what the boys' homes were like, which caused you most yeah, fear? It was, it was much of a muchness, really, but I just knew, I'd heard before that they were sentencing, when the kids were going to jail, they were getting housed in a one-wing protection jail of the Central Industrial Prison at Long Bay that housed the worst pedophile degenerates even negrophilic, they had one of the worst uh, negrophiliacs, a bloke by the name of Jeff Hardy was housed there at the time, who was a negrophiliac. And um, I'd heard about him. He was, you know, a person who had sex with dead bodies. And um, the jail, I think, would have been more more of a, more scary out of the two. But I just, I just, I didn't think it was real. We were in a bull, the old F100 bullwagons driving out to, to uh, Anzac Parade out to Long Bay Prison. And I, I was just thinking, oh, they're going to drive us out here, try scaring us, and then take us back to the boys' home. And it didn't pan out that way. We arrived at Mount, we arrived at the Central Industrial Prison at Long Bay, which is a really daunting thing. The gates and yeah, I worked there some of the time. A terrible. Place. Yeah, and then um, we went straight in, and we were the subject of a, a lot of humiliation. Like you know, um, the officers there were strip searching us and trying to get us to do things that now I know are illegal, like spreading our bum cheeks and lifting up our balls and. And all of these all sort of humiliating sort of stuff. And, and you know, and there was some sexual sort of um, quote, like they were saying some sexual sort of stuff themselves, saying, oh, the boys are going to love you. And and then um, they give us clothes that were too big to humiliate us. And anyway, so I had to, uh, they took it, walked us up to a cell. And out front of us, so you got a prison card, like cards, cell cards, and it says the prisoner's name and the, and the amount of time that he's serving. And, you know, I can remember one bloke was seven, 10 years and one bloke was seven, six years. And uh, they put me in a cell and there was a bunk bed and they put me on a mattress on the floor so there was three of us in the cell. And um, What year was this roughly? 1984, 85. And you were 16 at this point? Yeah, 16 turning 17. And um, so as he slapped the door, them officers, they were laughing their heads off. They said, have a, have a bit of fun in there tonight, boys, you know. In other words, they know what they were going to do. And um, that night I was sexually abused by two who... This is your first it, night? First night in prison. Like, you was sitting there, I was, I, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm, anyway, I was laying, laying on the floor and he was asking me about what I'd done, uh, you know, what I was... And apparently the, the Porsche chase had been on the news the night before. They said, oh, we've seen that on. Anyway, this bloke's sitting there, he's got a sheet over him and, you know, I'm sort of keeping on one eyes on him and there's a TV there and sort of watching this old black and white TV... And all I can see was masturbating underneath the shirt. And then, and then he said, mate, get up here and do something with this. And I just froze. And then the one at the top bunk said, mate, it's the easy way or the hard way, you know, and then bang, I was, and then they both sexually abused me. You know, and, and you know what? People go, oh, would have bitten his dick off or would have done this. And it doesn't work out that way when your life's been threatened. Well, then you get killed, you know. It doesn't work out like that. People go, oh, I would have fought for my life. Yeah, 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course you would. Until you're a seventeen-year-old boy, and there are two adult, adult men in there. They're both yeah. adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't work that way, and it's that you know that fight, flight, or freeze, and it was freeze for me, you know. And um, anyway, so the next day I came out of my cell, and um, and my cell, my co-accused um, had been. He told me the same thing. They'd been been abused, and just I could just tell by his demeanor. And I said, "What happened to you?" And he goes, "Oh, I don't want to talk about." And then there was a guy there called Jeff Harding, the creepiest looking thing you'll ever see in your life, and um, he had those dark Coca-Cola glasses and little hunchback and he just took a liking to me, you know what I mean? And yeah, so he said, oh, you know, you're going to have to come in my cell. And I said, I don't want to go in your cell. And he said, well, it's going to be the easy way or the hard way. And he had like, he had drugs, he had heroin in that. So if you've got the heroin, you're going to control what goes on in the yard. So the muscle will do, you know, and he and basically just said to me, mate, this is how it's going to go down. Then boys over there, if you don't do it, he said, get around here. And when I got around there, he, um, he pulled out what like was, um, an old syringe and it was like, it was crazy how it was built. It was like there was a nail for the for the plunger and a, a piece of thong put together on his two mil syringe and um, he said, have this. And, uh, and I, was, I didn't want to have it and he said, just have it. And he said, it'll make you feel, once again, it'll make you feel better and uh, injected me with heroin and as I was, and heroin makes me vomit, right? So I was, I was on, on my knees, vomiting into the toilet, and he took great joy out of sexually abusing me while I was vomiting in the toilet, you know? He was a pretty unwell bloke, wasn't he? And the nail presumably could have had tetanus. I'm pretty adamant I got hep C out of that hole because I ended up with hep C, so I think that's where I first got hep C from that experience. And HIV was just starting then, yeah. Grim Reaper ads were just starting off then. And you were there for a year? I was there for about three months or a couple, or at least a couple of months and I get what's called a Section 94A back to the boys' homes, and, uh, which meant I got transferred to Mount Penang. But when I get to Mount Penang, it was a little bit different for me. There was, like, there was sexual abuse and that going on, but I sort of got left out of it, like, you know what I mean? I just sort of, for some reason, they left me out. I think they realised I was pretty damaged at that stage and, um, I, I, you know, and... Um, so who left you out of it? The the custodial officers? Yeah, or? the custodial officers. And once again, amongst the other kids, I was a bit of a hero because I'd just come from jail. So I had this status of, you know, this, I was up, I was straight up the top of the food chain with the, the with the kids of, you know, he's that bloke who come from jail. And I weren't telling them I'm getting sexually abused. I was telling them lies. Oh, yeah, I bashed this bloke. I was hanging out with that bloke. And, you know, I was talking myself up and because I didn't want to be vulnerable. I didn't want to be this kid. I didn't want to be a target. And Look, Mount Penang, I... Well, that was your survival method, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it started to be, and then I become defensive and then I become violent, you know what I mean? Well, when you were out in the boys' home? Yeah, yeah, I really stepped it up. I really stepped it up. And, and, and you know, I did develop that thing, or if they tried on me now... You know, and I'll be honest with you, I had I made I had makeshift knives and everything like that by this stage and I thought if they start on me now, I reckon they sensed that. I reckon they really sort of started to sense, hang on, this kid is on the edge, he's on the precipice of fucking attacking one of us if we try anything and they sensed that with me. And I think even towards the end of the jail, like that time in jail, that stopped happening to me because I started to challenge them blokes. Like, you know what I mean? I started, I developed, something developed in me that I never had before and that was that propensity for violence. That was protective for you though. The violence came as a, like a protective instinct. 
Well, that, that, that's what I developed. I developed that protective instinct that was like, okay. Well, it's survival of the fittest, you know. I, and, I was having um, awareness. Like I knew there was a mop bucket over here. I knew I created this awareness in me. I knew there was a stick there or whatever, and which I never had before. Were you using heroin at Mount Penang? Was that available there? That's when the influx of that's, that's when the five T really was starting to kick off. That was the early days of the five T Vietnamese gang, and they had it. So there was one there, and he used to get visits on the weekend, and we'd we'd, we'd get on it. And then, um, and by this stage, by the time I got out of boys' home, my mother had moved to Liverpool, which is not too far from Cabramatta. So I knew all about it. I knew, you know, I'd done I'd done eight, yeah, I'd done eight months of that twelve month sentence because it was remissions back then, and. Um, I was a damaged kid, you know, I got out. But once again from prison, you know, it was the first talk of like legitimate bank robbers and everything, like actually engaging with some of them. The ones that were where I were were like crown because in that one wing protection yard, you know, uh, they were either crown wing. They were just, that was just the lowest of the lowest. It was pedophiles, it was crap cops, it was people who were crown witnesses and people in court cases and that sort of thing. What I would have been, if I would have went to a mainstream prison, Back then, like in the mainstream, yeah, I wouldn't have got sexually abused in jail. No way. Not a hope in hell. And I later worked that out because I ended up back in jail but in a mainstream prison. But, you know, I got out of Mount Penang and I started to visit Cabramatta a lot. I used to, you know, I got into that routine of going and getting, I was like, just, you know, heroin at that stage. Well, you're hitting it up then. You you know, you weren't smoking it. I was shooting it up and um, it was the only thing. And it just, and heroin was, man, like when I found heroin, I found Havana and, um, and it was numb. How so? What did heroin do for you? It numbed me. You see people go on a nod on heroin. I'm, it's, for me, taking heroin was like taking speed. I'd just, I'd, I'd mow your lawn, your next door neighbour's lawn, do your washing, clean your house, I don't know, polish your doorknobs. Or, that's what I just, I don't know what it is. You know, like speed would put people with ADD asleep. Heroin would rev me right up. And, um, but it also make me numb and I, I, I like that, that warmth. Like as soon as you have a shot of heroin, within two seconds, you, you get, you know, the, the, the euphoria comes through your body, you know, and it's a warm feeling, warm, you know, felt safe. So and, what uh, changed for you? So obviously you're getting this kind of this, it, it's taking away the pain and everything else, the memories, and it's making you feel good. So, so what changed? How did you break that cycle? Well, you know, I ended up doing 23, I ended up being a bank robber and escaped and ended up spending 23 years in, in jail, you know. and To support your addiction? Yeah, 100%. I was recognised. In the end, they started to see it. And um, But Julia Gillard, the best prime minister this country's ever seen, and I think all good prime ministers leave a, a legacy, the good ones, and she left the Royal Commission Institution responses to child sexual abuse. And uh, it's real funny. You know, I met a guy, I was going to Perth, I was up to no good, I was taking something over the Perth that I shouldn't have been, and I met this guy, I was reading a book called Sleepers. And anyone know that, that the Sleepers movie with Kevin Bacon, it's about some boy, kids that go to a boy's zone and get sexually abused, and they square up on their abusers. And he told me it's from the Royal Commission and, and, and what was going to go down with that, and he put something in my head, you know. And um, long story short, I got pinched for robbing a bank up in uh, Griffith Street, Coolangatta. I come out. How of did the you bank. get into that? Like, how did you? Oh, the go bank from, robberies. Yeah. How did you go from like nicking cars and doing drugs to robbing a bank? Yeah. Well, what happened was, you know, I'd done that boys' home stint, and I went back to jail for two years for breaking in the department stores, Grace Brothers at the time it was, and uh, I got pinched for that. And I, that's I'd done two years on that one in a mainstream prison, and I'd done my apprenticeship as a bank robber. I sought out all the bank robbers, like in prison. 
bank robbers hang around with bank robbers, people who steal cars hang around there, drug importers hang around there. Everyone, everyone, water finds its own level in there. It's a great equaliser prison. Mm. And I gravitated to the bank robbers and I used to pick their brains and, you know, and I, and I got out and I was prepared. After two years I was prepared. And, and, you know, you go to parole and the parole says you're not allowed to hang around with criminals. Well, you'd meet up with the parole officer, you'd meet up with all the criminals every Thursday. <laughs> So I met up with one and him and I went and robbed the bank one is, day. Was that planned? Like if you're hanging out with all the bank robbers in prison, did you? is it something you thought when I get out, that's what I'm going to do? 100%. I had every intentions of robbing banks. I had no... It was your calling. Yeah. You didn't want to do the other stuff. No, I didn't want to work. Probably better return for effort too, right? You get the money straight away. For sure. And I invested. Feed your addiction and get the other things. The, ex- yeah, the excitement the was a massive part of it all because in my life, and in particularly because of the abuse, I needed... A diversion, something to divert me. I needed excitement was appealing because, you know, the other stuff wasn't. And, um, you know, I invested, I went to Salvation Army, bought a $4 knife and, and got a $17,000 return, better than crypto. And I robbed my first bank. But out of that, robbing that first bank, it was like I, I'd done everything right. The bank robbers used to say, don't yell and scream, don't make people panic. It's not like the movies. Don't shoot cameras out. Your objective is to keep people as cool and calm as, as possible. And get out as quickly as possible. Yeah, and get out as quickly as possible and, and not to not to make people panic. And I've I always done my... When I've done robberies, look, I, I'm not taking... I, I'll do a disclaimer. I'm not taking away from the fact that I traumatise people but because um, I, I know what trauma is now. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know it, but I didn't go in there with the intent of purposely traumatising people. But um, I went in there, I tried to keep people calm. And, you know, I got described in the media as the gentleman bank robber. I don't know if that's any solace to the victims. But, you know, I robbed my first bank. I got 17000 out of it, you know. And um, I'm How old were you? 22 by this stage, you know. Yeah, I robbed that. A funny story there too is when we when we first robbed, when we robbed it, we, we went to park the car over in Liverpool. And as we parked, the coppers were all running towards them. When we parked the car in Liverpool, a bank had just been robbed. <laughs> and uh, how ironic! And um, where coppers are running, and that was when Roger Rogerson and his merry men were killing people. You know, you were mentioning Gillard, the Prime Minister. I agree with you. She did remarkable things. And getting back to your institutional child sex abuse, she was the one who called for the Royal Commission, correct? Yeah, which, yeah. Which, she was which the one. led to your epiphany and turnaround, as I recall. Yeah, no, it was the epiphany. And what happened was this is. Well, the, the, there's a, like a bit of a lead up to it. And I look back at it now and I think, wow, it was like the universe just steered me into this. And what happened was I robbed the bank in Coolangatta. I got chased and tackled by a bunch of super citizens who pinned me down. <laughs> one of them said to me, mate, I've, and uh, one of them said to me, I just saved your life, mate. And I, and I just didn't really realise it. But um, anyway, so I went to the jail. I went to prison with every intention of committing suicide. I had every intention. I'd made peace with it. I had a plan. I was going to go there and I was going to hang myself with the coaxial cable that was in the cell. Why? In... What What made you so determined to commit suicide? I was just so badly beaten. I was so badly beaten and I was so badly, I couldn't, because in between there, I, I had a period of time where I did get clean for a long period of time, but I had some success. I had a family and a successful business, but the trauma had never been dealt with, and it was just like putting a band-aid on a, on a, a, a weeping wound, you know. Hmm. And uh, until I dealt with that trauma, I was never going to be well. And with the benefit of hindsight now, so what happened was that night the coaxial cable had been vandalised. I couldn't hang myself, so I had to put it off one day. And there wasn't other things. It wasn't there never had sheets or anything like that. I was just really. It was midsummer. It was January the fourteenth, 
19, oh, 2014, and it was a boiling hot day. The windows in the cell wouldn't open. There was just a, an oven in there, and it was like being in a sauna. So anyway, the next day, a guy come in, in the jails in Queensland, they've got like a 30-centimetre display window in each cell door so the, the prison officers can look in and check on you. And uh, a bloke come to the door who I'd suspected previously of being a sex offender and later confirmed he was. I come up to me and he had a syringe and he had a syringe and he had a shot and he goes, I know you and I have never seen eye to eye. He says, but I'm offering you this as a peace, peace deal. And, and I, I looked at him and I banged on the window. I said, no matter how bad I was traveling, no matter how low I felt, I could never take anything off you. I said, if you don't get away from me, I said, I'm going to bash you when I get out. Was this Bogger Road? No, it was uh, Arthur Gorry. Arthur Gorry, it was in 2014, yeah. And then I went out and there was a young fella there and he had all these books set up on the table and I... I said, what are you doing? What are you studying? Because I'm studying to be a psychologist. He said, you know, I took your advice all those years ago. And he looked me up and down with disdain and it was like a scene out of the moon. And he goes, maybe you should take some of your own advice. And he went back to studying. And I'm like, ooh. Did you remember speaking to him before and, and yeah, giving yeah, him advice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what did you say to him? I just seen, identified him as being a real smart kid, you know what I mean? Like he's just one of these kids that could do unbelievable mathematics in his head without writing anything down on. I said, man, you are special, man. I said, you've got a lot of special traits. I said, have you ever thought about studying? And he goes, ah, oh, not really. It was just a kid that he could recite the dictionary, you know. He just had like a, a savant type thing with education, like just with certain things. And, and, he, and I said, you, maybe you should do psych. I said, you, you've you got like, you know, like I know, I know I looked at doing psych ones before, the mathematics, data analysis scared the shit out of me. And, um, it scares most too. people. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing it for four decades. It still does. But he kind of dissed you. Yeah. And that had an impact on you by the sound of I'd it. I'd had that. But there was a combination of plenty of things that happened within, you know, when they say with suicide, just put it off for 24 hours and things will change. It was just one of those. That was that day. So my mate's a lawyer. My mate got wind that I was in jail. And this is a bloke that I'd helped build his legal practice. And he got wind that I was in jail. He turned up on a legal visit and he said, oh, I said, man, I, his name's Nick Dore, and I said, Nick, I, I said, I'm going to get 10, 15 years. He goes, nah, nah, mate, they owe me a few. And Nick talks like an old guy. Nah, mate, they owe me a few favours. He said, yeah. He said, oh, I'll have to call in a favour. He said, but, you know, you're my mate. And he said, and how I'm talking right now is that's Nick to a T, right? He goes, I'll have to call in a few favours and see what you He said, how, 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 how would you feel about doing four years? And I said, oh, I'd be stoked to have to do four years and it could maybe, maybe set something up for me. And anyway, after that legal visit, you walk past education and education doors never open, right? Never open. It's always got a screw stand on. You can't go near it. You've got to have an application to get an application to get an application to get the application to get in there. That's how, like, jails, red tape central. The door was open and I could see one of the teachers sitting behind the desk. And, I, I, I man, once in a lifetime that'll ever happen. And I walked straight in and I got her attention. I said, she goes, oh, you know, because they knew me previously. And I said, I'd like to do some studying. And they said, what do you like to do? And I said, I'd like to think about doing law. And they said, well, you can do what's called a tertiary prep program. And, it'll, and, a, and the tertiary prep program is specifically designed to study. And I said, yeah, all right, sign me up for that. And I walked out. Anyway, by the time I got back, one of the boys had got me a TV and a proper coaxial cable. So there it was. There's the chance to knock myself. But a few things had happened. Morally with that guy, the sex offender, I still had something in me and it started a spark in me again and a light. There was something in me that went, you know what, morally I'm okay. I wouldn't take nothing. I stuck to my guns. I wouldn't take nothing off a sex man. I'd given advice to a young bloke that changed the trajectory of his life 
My mate came out. I looked like I didn't want to get that much bad. And here I go. I flick on the TV, 7.30 report, one of my first shows. Here it is. They're going after Pell and Brian Houston from Hillsong. Here's it. And I was like the universe just steering me in this direction and going, no, nah, this is what you got to do. And they talked about the Royal Commission. And I said, that's it. That was like, I don't know. I learned in a sales training course one time, you get, you'll get a key. And that was the key, the Royal Commission thing. And, and they said, here it is, you know, and, and they said something about people telling us. So, so I jumped on the phone the next day. I got the, the, the address and I wrote them a one-page fool's cap letter. And it was like one of those ceremonies where you, you write something down, you burn it and you forget it, you know. So I wrote it and that's what the expectation I had from it. They're not going to worry about me. I'm just a criminal child. They're not going to come near me. And I wrote it and just posted it and hopefully part of my own therapy rather than, than anything else. So I wrote it, posted it. Two weeks later, I remember the woman, her name was Michelle Burford, called me out. And when you go for a, you'd be aware of it. You guys would be aware. You go for a legal visit as a criminal, you go, you don't know if the cop is there for more charges and you've got your one foot in the door and one foot and who is it? Ready they, to bolt. Yeah, ready to run, you know. Who is it? And they say, it's the police. You go, oh, I don't want to talk to them. Off you go. And they just got to go out there for duty. But but, but um, she said, I'm from the Royal Commission. I went, what? And I said, what do you want with me? And they said, we got a letter from you. And I went, and I sort of was vague even. But um, I said, oh, yeah. And, they, and she said, when I sat down, she goes, Russell, I just want you to understand one thing. We believe you. We know this happened to you. Was that the first time somebody had actually said that those words to you and actually validated yeah. your experience? 100%. And it was like I had tears. And but she said, but we've also got some backing information that it did happen here because your name has been mentioned by other people that you were there. And, um, and I went, wow. So I sort of had a bit of a chat for her about now and then bang, and, they, and then I had to go in this other room and I, and I went, what's this about? And they said, oh, and a woman identified herself as a trauma counsellor. It was the first time that it was ever, ever offered to me. How old were you then, roughly? Um, that, was, uh, that was 2015. Oh, 48. Wow. So you lived so your whole life. From the age of 15 mm. to 48, no one had validated you. No mm. one had talked to you about it. Oh, look, I've been asked, Professor, a guy you'd mostly know, Professor Ian Coyle, asked me about it in a, in a psych mm. report once, and I denied it. I just said, nah, have you been sexually abused? Because that, that wound was too big a wound to open up, you know. It was too big a wound. It was that, it was bolted down. It was like fucking rivets and. Bolts and everything, you know, and just I, 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 but 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 all of a sudden there's this ray of sunshine. Yeah, people are saying we know you're telling the truth. We want to help you, and here's a trauma counselor. And did you for accept you to that help? To. Yeah, I did. That little woman was a trauma counselor. I, I I spoke to her. She was a little English woman, not too dissimilar accent to your own, and um. I spoke to her for four years, you know, and never even wow. knew, never knew what she even looked like. We just spoke on the phone, <laughs> and we done some, we done some amazing stuff together, and um, yeah, it was really good. It was life changing. So that was the turning point for you, obviously. There was another one too. Um, there was a, there was another pivotal point. I was in the yard. When you're in a prison yard, um, there's two phones on the wall, right? So you got fifty or sixty blokes that you got to use that phone. So everyone knows what everyone's talking about on the phones. Johnny's boy kicked two goals in the football or whatever and whatever, his daughter got A's or something like that at school. So everyone knows. Anyway, I've been on the phone, I've been talking to Royal Commission and, and I could, jails, are like I, you pick up on a vibe and I've seen a couple of young blokes when I jump on the phone be whisper, uh, whispering to each other and they, they, they were the opinion that I was talking to the police when I was talking to Royal Commission, so they become sus on you. So I understand how quickly this sort of thing can escalate and how dangerous it could be for me. So... 
So I grabbed the whole yard. I said, listen, come together. I want to tell you something. And, and there was a prison officer there too. And I said, um, I'm not talking to the police. And I pointed at these young bloke. And I said, you little grubs, you're getting it wrong. You're thinking I'm talking to the coppers. I said, I'm, not I'm talking to the Royal Commission about the abuse that I suffered as a kid. And I told him, you know, I said, I'm sick of being, I'm sick of being, I don't like you guys. I don't want to be around you. I said, I don't want to live with you the rest of my life. I want to get away. I want to break this cycle. Anyway, you know, they all applauded me. It was just amazing. It was the first time. Which jail were you in then? Uh, Meriburra Correctional Centre in Queensland. Oh, okay. So you're standing yeah. there with these all these guys around you applauding you for yeah. sharing your experience and trying yeah. to do something about it. Yeah, and I think that's when my organisation was sort of born. You're like, I just realised, you know, and then I had that prison officer said, man, that was fucking brave what you did, you know, and everyone applauded me and everyone pulled me up. But what happened from that was a lot of boys started, men started telling me what had happened to them too. So I realised that, you know, I had something in me that where I could create a safe space where people feel, I don't know, feel safe to tell their story. And so, you know, and I'd get these notes and these notes and say, oh, mate wants to meet you out at the Oval. And I'd go out at the Oval and mate's got a pair of steel cap boots. And that's the way that sort of goes down is normally someone wants to fight you. And I go out there and I go, you say, I walk out the Oval and I go, oh, how are you, mate? And he'd go out the side of you, know, what happened to me too? And I'd say, what happened to you? And he'd go, I was sexually abused. And, and some of the most violent people uh, in the prison system were telling me their stories, you know, about the abuse that happened. That's extraordinary because they trusted you. And I know from, you know, a lot of work in this space over many years. It's more effective and real when it comes from somebody who's been through it and has survived it and talks about it. And uh, it doesn't surprise me then that you probably just had a conga line of people, you know, 64. To talk about it. 64 guys. When I was at that jail, I ended up getting transferred back to New South Wales. 64 people told me their story. When did you give up the hammer, kind of? Oh, look. I, when I when I heroin yeah when I um that time where when I when I watched that seven, when I was sitting in my cell and I was sitting in my cell watching the seven thirty report I made a decision right my decision was either kill myself here and now or start living and start living involved not being on drugs you know and I made a commitment from there on I said you know what that's it it's over and you know I wasn't like because I was in higher sort of up the food chain in prison. I always had the opportunity to use it, but, you know, I'd get offered it to me. I'd say, no, I'm not interested no more. And, oh, and may I add, a very well-established habit by that time. For sure. It, it can't have been easy for you to jump off. Did you have treatment? No, no, no treatment. I, I'd never done Suboxone. I'd never done Methadone. I'd never done any. It was like straight off. Back, like, you know, within four, like my thing was always just to get on my feet, like, Get on my feet as quick. I'm not, like I'd be hanging out for four days, laying in the bed, sweating and all that sort of thing. But I get an old gangster called Kevin Holland. You might have come across him. Um, I I knew Kevin well. Uh, yeah, because Kev I worked at Parramatta Jail, and he was he the was number a kind one of enforcer back in those yeah. days, and nobody mucked around with Kevin. Well, Kevin, but I knew him well. Yeah. Well, Kevin Holland, you know, used to like. To be, there, there was kids called the chosen ones. If you got the chosen one, that was someone who could train with Kevin Holland because he was like, you know, a really well-respected, you know, personal trainer and I got the train with him. So I, 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 through Kevin Holland, I developed this, you know, really high work rate for exercise, you know, because well, training has always been my antidepressant. It's always been my mental, and I'll, I'll leave here now and I'll go and train for two hours. But, um, um. And, um, you know, and I'll just get on my feet, start training and start looking after myself. But from what ha – uh, uh, and 
and I went cold turkey and I just started doing NA meetings and forming NA meetings in, in the prisons. You know, I'd, I'd, been, I'd been introduced to me at Parramatta Jail in 1987, the NA meeting. So it was always my go-to because that works for me, you know. That program. Yeah, it's very effective. Yeah, that program, that structure works for me. And I still do them today. I do, them, I do online meetings a couple of nights a week. But, um, you know, from that I got transferred to New South Wales. I ended up, I got sentenced. I got the four years my mate said I was going to get and um, I had two weeks to go and the cop has come up with six old bank robberies for me and um, and I was, you know, and I, I, I structured it really well because I, I was getting uh, paroled to a rehab that specialised in uh, reintegrating long-term prisoners. There's a place called Glebe House in Glebe. So, um, yeah, I remember that. As well, yeah. Leap House. It was a halfway house. Yeah, well, yeah. they turned it into a rehab that specialised in reintegration. But I was four years clean, and I just, I was so real, realistic. I knew I had a living problem. I knew I didn't know how to pay bills. Technology scared the shit out of me. You know, I'd done the TPP. I'd been approved to study law through the University of Southern Cross by correspondence. So I was getting out with a game plan, and um, you know. And then that that put it on hold for a bit. And then I got hold of a, a lawyer called Peter O'Brien, who you'd know. By this stage, I'd been awarded a compensation claim for my my abuse through that royal condition. Yeah. And um, so I had some money to buy decent lawyers this time. And I and I realised. And a lady came into my life called Mary Keeney. She was with um, the name the uh, legal arm of the Royal Commission called No More. And um, she went on to become a legal uh, Aboriginal legal aid barrister. And she she came to visit me when I was in jail because she was really keen to get me on a podcast. And um, you're in demand, mate. Yeah, well, she was in. That was the start of it, and um, she was keen to get me on a podcast. We became friends, and and so she helped me get bail. Like she told me, she's you'll get bail on these, and I said, oh, I, I can't get bail on fucking whistling in the pictures, let alone six armed robberies. She goes, you'll get bail on because the judge will see through the coppers' delay. And um, anyway, Peter O'Brien got me in front of Central Local and that magistrate was scathing of the coppers. He said, you've had four years to charge him and you do it right now, you know. And um, Was that the, Alan Moore? No more ball, bail? No, nah, he was a bald-headed bloke with the Dr Phil haircut. Oh. <laughs> yeah. and narrows the f- anyway, you got bail. Got bail yeah. to a rehab and um, I went to a rehab called Adele House up at Coffs Harbour Good spot. Yeah. Idea. Well, it was it was my type of rehab because a lot of rehabs don't have won't allow you to exercise and um, because it's jail behaviour and all those stupid things I don't understand. And and I done the, I done the program there and I got I got offered the general manager's job on my way out. They said, look, we'll give you seventy grand a, re- a year and a Corolla. I said, you give me seventy grand a month and a Bentley and, and I've got the job. But <laughs> it wasn't going to wasn't going to work out that way. But what happened was. Um, lawyers have been contacting me and, and, and other people, psychologists and psychiatrists saying, Russell, you've got this gift, you want to do this for work when you get out. And Mary Keeney, who was a criminal, uh, private criminal barrister at Frederick Jordan Chambers by this stage, was really encouraging. She said, you've got to do this and she's become a big support person in my life. And, um, and I kicked off the voice of a survivor from a barbecue, uh, I had a barbecue table uh, on, uh, uh, on my um, balcony and this one bedroom flat in Coffs Harbour and, and off I went. I didn't know how to use the computer. I, I brought people in and I brought this one. How long ago was that, Russell? Uh, 2017, September 2017, we kicked off. I guess I'm kind of wondering, you know, since you've had your, your trauma counselling and you kept that up, obviously, and that's mm. something that's really worked for you. I'm actually doing it now. I'm, trauma, I don't, I'm not official to trauma counsellor, but I do a lot of it. I've got a lot of people I do one-on-ones with, like, I had some woman for two hours and I couldn't let her go because she was so, you know, really engaged and I was just, 
my phone's ringing and, you know what I mean? But, yeah, but yeah, for sure. And so how is life for you now then, given you've had your own counselling to kind of deal with some of your trauma? So how, how does it all go for you now? Because you obviously, this is in front of your face every day. So that 100%. must be a challenge. I'm on the front line. I'm on the, it's like, I'm on the front line of the war, basically. But my life today is the best it's ever been, you know, because I've got a really good structure in my life. And um, with, a gratitude, with gratitude being the foundation of everything I do, you know, because I realise with gratitude, when you're really attached to your gratitude, you can't be angry. You can't be, you can't be, you know, you can't have resentments. And, you know, my, my morning routine is so good. I get up in the morning. I write five things I'm going to be grateful for, five things I intend to help people with or do for other people, and two-minute cold showers. The cold showers are a game changer. So, Russell, how are things with your family now? They're really, really good. It's been a work in progress because I got out of prison. You know, I've been out of my boys' lives, you know, for I think boys were maybe 10, 12 years of their lives. So it was a lot of work, you know. And I tried to buy them, you know. I tried to buy my kids, you know what I mean. And and all they wanted was my time. But here I was, establishing my business and getting obsessed about work. And like, you know, I I got out of prison with some goals. The goals were to work twelve hours a day, three hundred and sixty-five days for two years straight, so I could rebuild myself financially. My intention was, if I work twelve hours a day, that's twelve hours a day. I'm not going to get into trouble. I sleep eight hours a day. There's twenty hours a day covered, so I'm not going to get into trouble. So. I build a structured day around myself. I train two hours a day, some NA meetings or whatever, and I, had, I just had my day stru- so strongly structured and I didn't veer away from it. But what suffered was my relationship with my kids, you know, and, um, you know, and they just wanted their dad. They wanted some time with me and, you know, and I, here I was just going, he's 500 bucks, go and buy yourself a pair of shoes or whatever. And so, so, so I've tried, done some silly things trying to buy them, you know, and, and, and there was some resentments and, you know, it's been, it's been hard work, but we've really worked hard and often... I've got the blueprint to stay out of trouble, you know. I've got the blueprint to stay. My kids wouldn't, my, especially my oldest bloke, he wasn't interested in that and he had to hear it from my mate. So, you know, in particular, my oldest one, he's suffered a lot, you know. But, um, you know, he's come back. He's come good now. He's got a good girl. And my family are people that, um, you know, you know, they're, they're starting to come around because they, you know, I disappointed them so many times about staying out of trouble and only to get back into trouble. But, you know, I think they're, I'm, they're starting to come around. They're starting to believe, hang on, he might be on a roll here. He's staying, you know, because it's been, I've been out six years next month. You know, I've been out of prison six years. I haven't been in trouble for what? Which 10 is years. the longest time, right? Since Derek. Well, it's just coming up, the record's six years. So I'm, I'm just about to break my record. And, um, but, but I'm, I'm so, but even, look, now I'm, I'm more confident I'll never get in trouble again I, I just because I've dealt with the trauma, I think, you know. And I say this when I see these people all jumping up and down about these youth crime gangs and everything, I said, deal with their trauma, you won't have a crime problem. So you don't think you've ended up robbing banks and doing everything else if, if no. though you hadn't lived through your experience in the boys' home? The first yeah. one changed the path of, changed the trajectory of your life. 100%. And you know what? When I did get sentenced for those armed robberies, I was out on bail. I'd been out of bail, on bail for about 16 months, and when I did get sentenced on them robbery charges, the judge recognised that, you know, it, you know, because it had come out in the wash about the sexual abuse, and he said something like, he said the words to the effect of, he said, you know, to sentence you back to prison, send you back to jail today, would be do, you'd be doing the community a big disservice. He said, you've now, when you've been an enemy of the state, you've now become an asset to the community, or words to that effect. And Richard Pontello, who was my barrister, said they were the best summing up it's the best best sentencing comments that he's ever heard in his life, you know. 
And I think we're going to pick up on that in part two um, and kind of really talk more about your advocacy and and the work that you do in that space, because it's incredibly powerful. Some of the things you shared really tie in with some of the other guests that we've spoken to in terms of trauma experiences and decisions they've made, and also, I guess, points in their life that have made a difference, either for good or bad. And that's certainly something we're going to explore more in part two. So I just want to thank you for your time so far and just encourage people to come back because we're going to talk more about your advocacy. And so we're going to pick up there and hear about how not only your life has changed, but you're now changing other people's lives. So thank you for your time. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you guys. What an extraordinary interview, Zav. I have deep respect for Russell, his honesty, his willingness to share what must have been very traumatic memories in a very public forum and uh, just the lessons that he's learnt and the lessons he wants to give to others. And to destigmatize the whole issue of child sexual abuse, especially institutional child sexual abuse, which until even fairly recently, people didn't want to talk about, they didn't want to acknowledge. So you're right, it was, it was very brave that he decided to share his story and ultimately inspire other people and act as a role model to instigate change. What I found interesting was that once he opened up once he stood up in, in front of the other prisoners and explained that he wasn't a police informer, that in fact he was trying to do th positive things for victims of sex abuse in institutions, uh, there was a conga line of other prisoners who wanted to speak to him. I think he said something like 60 prisoners lined up and started talking to him about this because I assumed that they felt validated through his story. And I imagine it was the first time many of them had shared that because there is a deep shame, not that there should be, but people feel a deep shame. And that's one of the reasons this has stayed in the darkness for so long. So I think shining a light on it is incredibly important. And ultimately, he took that, the power he felt in that, you know, prison yard when everyone clapped and has moved that into the next stage of his life, which ultimately we'll be talking about in part two when we look at his advocacy and I think that that's going to be another extraordinary part of his life story and his journey which people will find very inspiring and um, I'm very much looking forward to hearing about that how he's taken a very dark history and really turned that around so it's certainly going to be an interesting part two to the discussion. I'm looking forward to it and isn't he articulate? Fabulous. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available. I'm Tim watson Munro, And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.